Say again? They gave her back. Yes, she's in my shower. I'm looking at her for Christ's sake. That's impossible. They don't even know you. They couldn't No, possibly. they couldn't. You're right. And since the body can't be here and this is all a dream, and oh, look, there's Alma the Elf. Good morning, Alma. What's in your basket? Shut up. How did they get I in? I mean, how am I supposed to know how they got in fire escape, maybe? Okay, first things first. We gotta move her somewhere. You got gloves? You have to move her. If it's a frame up, some asshole's probably calling the cops on you right now. Do this. Wrap up the body in a blanket, a sheet, anything. Okay, okay. Oh, any particular kind of gloves? Yes. Fawn. Will you fucking hurry? Barry. Yes? I peed on it. What? What? You peed on what? I peed on the corpse. Could they do like ID from that? I'm sorry, you you peed on, on the corpse. And my question is... No, my question. I get to go first. Why in perfect hell would you pee on a corpse? I didn't intend to. It's not like I did it for kicks. First, you have to wrap the body. Okay. Second, you've got to find the gun. Say this with me. Find the gun. Find the gun. Find the gun. Oh, I not my gun, idiot. They dropped the body and it's a frame up. Then they also have planted a gun. Trust me. So welcome to Because Movies. We're here continuing our Shane Black Christmas series. This time around, we're going with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It's uh, Shane Black's directorial debut from 2000 and. Five. I'm Chris. I've got AJ here with me as usual. Say hello, AJ. What's up, y'all? I am very excited to speak on Smooch, Smooch, Boom, Boom. <laughs> That's the name, right? Close enough. Close. Close. Enough. All right. Cool. Uh, so this comes in 2005. So it's almost a decade after The Long Kiss Goodnight, which I think that was the last project uh, Shane Black had worked on before this. Yeah, uh, it didn't. It kind of underperformed, and I think it kind of drove him into like a lull for a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but thank God so, he came back. You know, all cylinders firing for sure. Yeah, from what I could tell, uh, Shane Black, and most of this I'm getting from uh, like Wikipedia, but apparently Shane Black started work on this movie as like a romantic comedy. Yeah, um, and through the process, he ended up. I've been consulting with James L. Brooks. The great writer, producer, director. Yes. Yeah. Uh, famous for The Simpsons and As Good As It Gets. And Broadcast News, Terms yeah. of Endearment. Yeah, it goes on. James Brooks is yeah. the real deal. <laughs> yeah, I'm more familiar with his like post-90s work, but he was a big deal way before that. But yeah, so he basically decided, like, fuck it, I've got to put a murder in this movie. Uh, and and so he kind of... Shane Black got a Shane Black, bro. Yeah. He's got to do it. He's got to do it his way. Right. <laughs> so it does kind of work as a romantic comedy still. So you can see that still in the final product. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it definitely became more of like a crime light noir. I mean, I guess it is mostly a comedy. There's a little action in it as well. But and he said he added like he had the gay Perry character to like break stereotypes. He said he'd never seen uh, at this point talking about early 2000s. I guess like a super confident gay character that could kick people's asses and would shoot people, <laughs> blow people away and, and save the day and stuff. Sure. Um, and I also, I did not realize that a lot of the crime plot came from uh, an old detective novel, which I guess I should have known because I, when I watched it again, after reading that, I noticed it was in the opening credits <laughs> that it's partially based on bodies are where you find them uh, by Brett Halliday. Brett Halliday. Um, That's what I remembered. I don't remember the name, but I knew it was something by Brett Halliday. Have you ever read any of his books? Or I have not. I have not. I wish I had. I mean, if that's the kind of shit he writes, it's mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a little more complicated than it needs to be. But you know, again, that's a Shane Black hallmark because a lot of those old Chandler novels and shit like that, they're you know, convoluted and 
You know what I mean? Um, and it's, that's kind of what we love about it. Uh, as long as I feel it's being told confidently, I, I don't necessarily need to completely understand what's going on. I do like it when I understand what's going on. Yeah. But if I feel like the filmmakers know, you know, from right. the confidence of the storytelling, I just kind of, I try to remember the little pieces I am given. So that way, when I can, I can put them in the larger picture that the movie will provide for me when it decides it's time. Right. That's the great thing about mysteries and noirs and things like that. It's incredibly confusing until it all is revealed. And then you go, oh, this is actually really simple. We just, the pieces we had in the order in which we were gave, given them made it all seem very, very complicated you know? yeah. or confusing or like, just like, what the fuck is going on? And that's the mystery of it. So, yeah, it's great. And I mean, I love that there's the fictional detective Johnny Gossamer and there's a whole fictional line of books down to the way they all look like of a piece when we see all the paperbacks on the shelves and things like that they all look like you know they're in a series like they do like those books do and it's like for yeah. people who love to read that kind of stuff it's like you go oh yeah Shane Black knows Shane Black's one of us yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly you know I mean, and that's just a you know a service detail you know the storytelling and all that that's where you really know oh yeah Shane Black has inhaled and absorbed these things in his very soul sorry to get all you know waxy poetic <laughs> dumb about it but i mean it's just it's exciting mm. uh and down to and you know i could bring this up later but i'm gonna bring it up now because we're talking about the books i love that he uses literary devices to tell the story in the movie not that mm. breaking things up into chapters was never done before in a movie but the way he does it like you know day one chapter one or whatever with the chapter title and then that first one has the story within the chapter within the chapter, how Harry got to the party, you know, with the title card. And I, you know, we've read books like that where you're reading a chapter and then suddenly it's like sometimes the print goes in a little bit. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? The margins on either side right. tighten up a little bit to differentiate different place yes exactly and it's like maybe a few pages maybe it's just one maybe it's only three paragraphs but it's like this story within the story that the the writer is taking a moment to kind of just place this little box of goodness inside the box that is that chapter and it him doing that in the movie is like Fuck yeah bro i love it <laughs> it seems like such a silly thing to get excited about but i bet there's other people out there that are like you know what that's pretty fucking cool i dig it <laughs> you know i'm sure i'm not alone so yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exciting and, and different. And it's him being him. You know, that's part of, you see that and you're like, well, this is Shane Black doing Shane Black. You know, it's not a, just a script he wrote. He's getting directed himself. And this is really who he is as a storyteller and a, and a creative motherfucker. And hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. And, you, you know, the chapter titles, you know, for day one, day two, day three, day four are all based on Chandler stories. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, you're talking about like, are all the pieces being put together? Like you don't have to understand it all as the movie progresses, as long as like you're confident that the filmmakers know what they're they're doing. And that reminds me of a, of a uh, kind of a famous Chandler story. Uh, you know <laughs> I what think I'm I know. About? I think I do. I think I do. Lay it on me. Uh, yeah, and he, you know he he had uh, the the novel The Big Sleep, which turned into a Humphrey Bogart movie. And somebody had asked him, I don't know if it was after the movie came out or if it was just after the book came out, but the story is somebody asked him, well, who killed the chauffeur? Because at one point in the story, a chauffeur is killed. Mm -hmm. And that's never really like revealed or revisited or elaborated on. And they asked him after the fact, and he was like, you know, I never really thought about it. <laughs> like, it was just a plot device he put in there. Uh, so sometimes it doesn't really matter. Like, as long as you're enjoying the story you're being told, you don't have to necessarily ha have all the answers. But uh, yeah. 
and the writers know, or the writers just, I think it's Chandler. If it wasn't Chandler, it was Mickey Spillane. I don't think it was. I think it was Chandler. He said, and he may have been speaking of The Big Sleep. It was almost certainly a Marlowe book. He said, whenever I felt the story getting boring, I had a guy come in the room with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's just, some people might go, oh, that's hackery. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's really no, not. It's a clever trick. <laughs> yeah. And it's knowing the kind of story you're telling and knowing the audience for the kind of story you're telling. And that's going to perk them up. This is going to get the story, you know, revved up a little bit. And I can, that momentum will carry me through to the next place <laughs> where I'm not scrambling to figure out what's going on in my own story. Yeah. I think someone asked him to explain something about the big sleep and it wasn't who killed someone else. It was like, explain this part of it. And he was like, I really don't know. You know, like he's like, I, you know, it may have gotten a little too confusing for my own self. Right. And I wrote the damn thing. And that kind of, you know, that's the kind of, shit i live for you yeah. know when your writers just kind of oh you noticed that did you well that was the part when i was kind of hanging on for dear life and just trying to get through the story and my feet weren't really under me in those few chapters but you know i i, I think i caught it all right at the end and it's like yeah fuck it it works yeah and i i'm sure the first time i watched this which has been I, I watched this shortly after it was out on uh dvd and i'm sure i didn't follow everything even though i've seen it probably six or seven times at this point I'm still kind of sometimes surprised by and, and even confused by like, how did he know that? I'm not like I, I don't follow that, follow it that closely because largely because the movie is so entertaining. <laughs> like I don't concentrate on the details because I'm kind of enamored with, you know, the performances more than anything. Oh, for sure. On a moment to moment basis, you're either being dazzled by the performances by everyone in this movie is stellar doing at least career best work, if not equal to whatever that career best work may be. But yeah, in any given moment, you're you're just being blown away by a killer performance, the killer writing, the directing. I mean, I noticed it the first time I rented it. I was like, it, it feels like either Shane Black had made a movie before because mm-hmm. it's, it is so confident. It does not feel like the work of a first timer or it just feels like the work of a guy who has been thinking in his head for at least a little bit <laughs> what he would do if he ever got the chance to do it himself and direct something he wrote and just be pure unadulterated him, you know, and his movies only got more like, I mean, Iron Man three, which we'll get to is still very much a Shane black movie, but then the nice guys comes out and you're like, Holy fuck, <laughs> you know, he's just, he's compressing it like a diamond, you know, it's getting closer and closer to what feels like pure, the 100% uncut Shane black, the good shit. It ain't been stepped on baby. So the convoluted nature of it all, this is one of those that really doesn't matter. I don't think in all the ways that are important, you are too busy. Like you said, being entertained. It's just, you can be like, wait, what? But then someone says something funny or something cool <laughs> happens or someone pisses on a corpse and you're like, okay. Or somebody I- walks in with a gun. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it's all the good shit. <laughs> I was going to suggest we, we uh, kind of take this instead of going through the whole plot at the beginning and then talking about it, we'll kind of take this one chapter at a time and and kind of break it down that way. So Kiss Kiss Bang Bang uh, released October 21st, 2005, directed and written by Shane Black uh, with a budget of 15 million box office returns, 15.8 million. So (laughs) made just shy of a million dollars, I guess. Runtime, 103 minutes, a brisk runtime. So chapter one is called Trouble is My Business. Mm-hmm. So we, we can just kind of explain the plot as we go along and, and mention, you know, stuff that we liked, didn't like. There's not going to be much I didn't like. but um, Sure. 
I mean, and, and it's easy enough just setting the scene. You know what I mean? The movie starts at a Hollywood party. There's a guy played by Robert Downey Jr. who looks a little out of place. He's talking to us motor mouth the whole time. Yeah. And you realize Narrate, that. Yeah. Exactly. You realize he might not be the most reliable narrator there is. And he points this out himself throughout the movie. We find out that he's basically a small time scammer and thief. You know, he mentions stealing Xboxes, who back in New York is involved in a little bit of criming out one night. His co conspirator in the robbery uh, gets wounded. He ends up crashing a, which is interesting to me that it seems to be some late night audition yeah, I'm in not New sure York. How that- for a Hollywood movie with the actual <laughs> yeah. producer of the movie there in some like warehouse, like top story, second story shit. But anyway, he ends up crashing into it and by accident, you know, both evades the cops and gets invited out to Hollywood to potentially star in some new movie. That's why he's at the party. We get introduced to that producer, Dabney, and his dude, Gay Perry, who, uh, yes, listeners, is homosexual. It is a, a pun. That Shane Black seems very, very proud of, and that's, you know, good. (laughs) That's the great Val Kilmer, and uh, the party goes from there. It's pretty rad. Yeah, uh, Larry Miller is the the producer who is only in a couple of scenes. And, you know, when I was a kid, for whatever reason, he would pop up and stuff, and I would always be annoyed by him. I didn't like uh, Larry (laughs) Miller. But as I've gotten older, I find him to be really funny. I don't know if I would really want to watch his stand-up. I saw a lot of his stand-up as a kid because I ended up watching a lot of that A&E show, Evening at the Improv. Remember that, Uh, you know, in the 80s stand-up comedy boom thing? So I got to see him and, like, young Ellen DeGeneres and young Rosie O'Donnell and shit. Tim Thomerson even doing stand-up, which was Oh, wow. Yeah. But, yeah, I saw a lot of Larry Miller. I've always, even at the time as a kid, I was like, I don't think my dad likes him, but it seems like he's for my dad. (laughs) You know? But I do do appreciate him. I think he's really funny in this movie. Yeah, exactly. I I really like him in this, in, in the few minutes we get of him. Yeah, he's the one that is uh, flies Harry out to L.A. to to, to participate and uh, also is responsible for bringing Harmony to the party because he sees a uh, news broadcast where a former or an actor who was on a on a shitty like sci fi RoboCop ripoff TV show had broken into this woman's house in a drunken stupor in his costume mm-hmm. uh, and fell out of her balcony and the the uh, the scene where Michelle Monahan Monahan's uh, character is talking to to the reporter and like posing for the camera uh, mm. is just adorable and uh, ridiculous as well. At the time I saw the movie, I saw that, and within there's that there's her scene talking about how Rudolph the Red nosed Reindeer is about racism. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just her first few scenes, I was like. this lady's a star i've never Uh seen her in my life it turns out i had like as like a computer tech in like the born one of the born movies or something oh really yeah she would like you know it's a nothing part i think maybe she may have one line like you know he's on the move or some shit like that but i just thought holy christ this she's beautiful she's funny she can deliver dialogue i mean shane black dialogue can't be the easiest to to deliver but i'm sure for a certain level of actor they just they love that shit because they don't get dialogue like that all the time. You know what I mean? And just to be able to make a meal of it is is a gift. And she she was a gift, too. And I have been saying it ever since then. We as a nation, as a, <laughs> as a world, as a species, humanity has failed by not making Michelle Monaghan a major star. Because I think she could have been one. Mm-hmm. I think she should have been one. Yeah. She can really act. 
you know, in dramatics and all that, she can kick ass. She can be sweet and soft and romantic, and she can be funny. And you know, all, anyway, I could just sit here and talk about how great people <laughs> think she could do. But was she an eagle eye? The yes. Shiloh? Okay. Yes. Um, that, yeah, that, it seemed that, like that's a good little thriller, and she's really good in it. Yeah, I, I, I saw that once and I liked it well enough. But it seemed like she never really got like the big. You know, you would think maybe after this when she was in. Mission Impossible Three, yeah, might have been it, but like she never really got a big starring role that kind of like she took off after. But yeah, she's always good in everything I've ever really seen her in. Uh, have you seen that new Netflix show that she's in? I have not, but it looked interesting, and I wanted it. What is it called again? I can't remember. Yeah, honestly. it's one of those. Um, but I do want to watch it. I just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I'm sure she's really good in it. And she uh, was recently, really good in True Detective. Yes. Yes, she was really good in True Detective. Recently, there was one kind of like a lower budget B movie uh, action flick called Black Sight. It's like you know, it's pretty recent, so I mean, I'm sure it was filmed under COVID restrictions because it's a it's like a one mainly it's a one location flick. It's like this CIA black site where her and Jai Courtney are mm-hmm. part of a uh, you know the staff and a big bad criminal played by Jason Clark is being brought there and oh no the terrorists are there to get him out you know it's that kind of thing right right but it's well done it's it's fun it's pretty brutal at times the action is is really well done and she's a badass in it oh she also did one recently with uh, jamie fox called sleepless her and jamie fox are the co-leads it's a remake of a french action thriller called sleepless night where he's a dirty cop in las vegas who is in trouble with the mob in las vegas and she's the cop trying to figure out what's going on it's really an unsung little banger for my Is mind. that on a uh, streamer somewhere? It's been on Netflix. I was reading something about it like a year or so ago that it was a, a surprising overperformer on Netflix. That it was one of those that just people kind of fell upon and mm-hmm. it ended up getting a lot of views. Yeah, it's just a really, really well-made little B movie. I loved it. I thought it was great. You should check it out. Definitely. <laughs> All right. I think you dig it, dude. I'll put it on the list. Any, if if anyone who has taken the time to listen to this podcast is is listening to my words right now, you are almost certainly the the audience for that movie Sleepless, as well as Black Sight. Check them out. Always got to try to help our listeners, bro. That means so much. <laughs> but yeah, she she's really good in this, and it's a little bit of a stretch. I mean, it's a movie, but it's a little bit of a stretch that Harmony, the character's name Harmony, Harmony, Harmony uh, Faith and, Lane. Thank you. That Harmony and Harry both from a small town in Indiana end up at this party in LA, you know, 15 years later or whatever. But, but yeah, they, they have a serendipitous, is that right? Serendipitous. Yes. <laughs> Their little serendipitous meeting. I, yeah, I mean, that's movie bullshit. The yeah, thing that was always harder for me to buy movie bullshit. Speaking of is that they're supposed to be the same age. Yeah. You know what I mean? They were supposed well, to have gone she, to high school together. Yeah, she claims that she's, I think, 32 or 33, but I think she was like 28 when they made this. Yeah, she said Uh, she's 34. Okay, yeah, but I think she was still in her her late. Her late twenties when this when they made when they filmed this yeah and we, we get a scene at the, this party where she uh, discovers all these Johnny Gossamer books that she had read as a kid and she kind of falls asleep reading them and then this dirt bag uh, <laughs> comes up on her as she's passed out and just rubbing rubbing her leg <laughs> and Harry you know at this point he doesn't even know who she is that they actually know each other and confronts the guy and gives him this tough talk speech, which is really it's funny. It's a wonderful <laughs> speech. That's, yeah. it's a, and he sells it too. Like, yeah. He's going to pick his ass. It's a shame uh, how it goes. 
<laughs> and then he just gets blasted by the guy. He gets his ass kicked by the guy uh, in the yard. It's a hilarious cut. Because <laughs> he's like, we, come on, make your choice. And then he's just getting pummeled. <laughs> and it, it shows that, like, Harry has this, like, chivalrous streak. Because he, he, he wants to protect Harmony there, even though he doesn't know who she is at that point. And later, when we when he there's the dead body... And he like pulls her skirt down to like give her a little more dignity because yeah. her skirt's up too high. Like stuff like that like, shows that he's got this chivalrous streak, but he's also at different times shows that he's like super judgmental about women, <laughs> especially at, at the uh, party scene towards the end of the movie where uh, everybody wants to kick his ass. <laughs> he's not wrong about how if you just grab the East Coast and shook it, I mean, grab America <laughs> by the East Coast and shook it, all the normal girls would hang on and the rest end up in LA. I, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying there's some truth to it. I'm not saying it's hundred percent accurate. I am saying it is not wholly inaccurate. That is what I'm saying. And saying it in a party full of LA hopefuls, <laughs> it's probably not the best place for it. And of course, Val Kilmer gave Perry, you know, with his perfect timing, obedient little bitches too. And then gets you know, that <laughs> thing thrown at him, which he just so smoothly ducks. Cause he knew it was coming. You know, he's been there. That's his, that's his town. He knows. So, also, the uh, the guy, the asshole that, that Harry kind of saves Harmony from, she ends up leaving the party with him later, which is a great twist of the knife for uh, for Harry. Um, and it's usually the way those things go for those guys. <laughs> Having been one of them a lot of my life, you know, you think, oh, I'm going to save the girl from the dickhead. And she goes home with the dickhead. And it's like, <laughs> oh. And, you know, it's, you know, you have to respect women making their choices to want dickheads, you know? You can't be like, anyway, that dude, I can't remember his name right now. He's the one that plays Heather Langenkamp's husband, Dylan, and gets killed by Freddy's glove in New Nightmare. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, I didn't recognize him. I don't know that I, I mean, I've seen that movie, but I don't know. That I think I those are the only two things I've seen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, from there, you know, Perry lets him know that he knows who Harmony is because... Clearly, he's interested and gives her gives Harry a tip uh, where he can find her. And Harry ends up going home with uh, Harmony and her friend and sleeps with her Scary friend. Which, friend. Scary uh, friend. Yeah. <laughs> and that kind of leads to day two. So day two is the lady in the lake. And that's the first day that Perry and Harry. Did we mention that Harry is supposed to be following gay Perry around to he's get getting like, detective lessons? Yeah. He's getting PI lessons from, from that's uh, part Perry. of the thing from the producer. He's like, you got to have detective lessons and uh, they're doing a stakeout and a lady and a lake are involved. So yeah, they see a couple of guys try and dump a car in a lake. And uh, see again, Harry's immediate uh, reaction is to dive into the, to the lake after the car. And I'm not sure how, they know there's a a woman in the trunk because we find out later she was already dead, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but to get her out, Perry has to shoot the lock on the trunk and he accidentally shoots her in the head. So they can't do anything with the body as far as like showing the police uh, and whatnot. They got to kind of dump it. And we don't actually see the bad guys, right? We there see their silhouettes. Yeah. They're, but we see that they, they was clearly done on purpose. Yeah. No, which we, you know, later when we meet, Mr. Frying Pan and Mr. Fire. Is that how they're credited? Yes. Yes, they are, <laughs> which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, there's great jokes in that scene. The car being launched into the little lake is like a great what the fuck moment. And, you know, the whole, I mean, it, that whole scene is just one after another body blow of like funny things happening or funny things being said. The whole gun thing. Yeah. And the idiot in the dictionary. Harry you know, clearly being out of his element and Perry having to deal with it. Yes. And, and you know, 
Kilmer's having the time of his life in this role. You know, Perry is, like you said, he's not a nice man, but he's a lot of fun. Kind of an <laughs> asshole. The way he's constantly telling Robert Downey Jr., shut up! You know, I just, <laughs> every time he says, shut up to him, you know, uh, a Shane Black angel puts another clip in their gun. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, and uh, Harmony's sister, her body is found. So does Harmony know ahead of time that her sister is in L.A.? You know, I don't think so. Fear. I know. Oh, no. Well, I mean, she knows that she's she took her credit card. Remember? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because she has her card. So I guess she did. But yeah, Harmony finds out that her sister um, has killed herself. That's what the cops are saying anyway. And she doesn't believe it. She thinks that it was probably a murder. And so she she also thinks that Harry's a real detective. (laughs) Right. She she believes that uh, Harry is a real P.I. and wants to hire him to find out what really happened to her sister. And during this, you know, her begging him for help. He finally agrees, and then he finds the uh, the dead body that he he and Perry had dumped earlier in his uh, shower of his hotel room that he promptly and he manages uh, to piss on it. Yeah, that uh, clip that you played up at the jump that is it's just wonderful. Absolutely, <laughs> you know. No, no, I get to ask the questions now because that's you really would stop everything dead in its tracks and be like, okay, we really have to. I have to know why did you how. Did you come <laughs> to urinate on the corpse? Mm-hmm. What what possessed you? I mean, where where explain the like step by step, walk me through it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like let's get me there to where I get it. And it's the first time I saw that, I howled. I howled out loud that he was pissing <laughs> on the corpse. I mean, I'm not a crime scene expert or DNA or you know, I've seen a couple episodes of CSI like any good American, <laughs> but I feel pretty confident. You don't want to urinate on a corpse. Uh, Lead on it. Don't leave any other bodily fluids on it. Spit on it. Nothing. Nothing. Just don't don't fuck with the corpse. Just don't do it. But urinating on it is. It seems like a particularly egregious no no. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, you know that whole scene is hilarious, and Val Kilmer's reaction to it is pristine. Yeah. Yeah. He. I don't know what I know. I think the first thing I saw Val Kilmer in was probably Willow. I don't think I saw like that's a pretty great fucking start. I never, I've never seen The Doors, and I had never. I don't think I've still ever even seen the parody movie he was in, like in the early eighties. It's uh, called Top Secret. I'll have you know. Okay, yeah, I've never. I've never See, I saw seen that it. in theaters. That was one of the magical theatrical experiences of nineteen eighty four that little AJ had, and Val Kilmer immediately became one of the coolest people I'd ever seen. I was nine. You know, yeah. and so for years, after, whenever he would show up in something, I'm like, ooh, Val Kilmer. It was kind of like seeing war games with Matthew Broderick, and I had to see every fucking thing Matthew Broderick yeah. after that. And sometimes <laughs> it was, you know, Ferris Bueller, and sometimes it was Biloxi Blues, which an 11 year old didn't necessarily appreciate. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember yeah. when that came out, and my brother went to see it because he was a big Ferris Bueller fan and did not have great things to say about Biloxi Blues. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate it more now. Yeah, I, I don't even know what it's about. I just know he's like a, a soldier, right? It's based on a Neil Simon play, very autobiographical. He had done a, an original one called Brighton Beach Memoirs that got him made into a movie with Jonathan Silverman in his first role. Broderick had played the part in both plays on Broadway. Mm. For the movie of the first one, they did Jonathan Silverman. Well, when they did the sequel, they're like, well, the character is older and is actually around Matthew Broderick's age, so we'll let him do this one. I had seen Brighton Beach Memoirs, thought it was fantastic. I laughed the whole time, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be more of that, except it's going to be my favorite Matthew Broderick (laughs) doing this. And it was not funny to me the same way. Mm. And in fact, I didn't find a lot of it funny at all. 
And I was very mad at that movie for a long, long time. <laughs> Irrational? Sure. Vehement? Yes. Very passionate hatred in my heart for that movie for some years. <laughs> and anyway, thank you again for uh, listening to this little digression, uh, courtesy of AJ. But going back to it, yes, Val Kilmer popping off in Top Secret, which was his first movie. And Val Kilmer, let's just get this out of the way, is, is a crazy man as a person, as an actor. <laughs> no doubt. Phenomenal generational talent i think i think he's just one of the best but god i don't know if i'd want to be around him working i don't know if i could work with him you know what i mean yeah. i listened to the commentary track for this a while back and i wouldn't say he ruins it but he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's he's That's not a a really <laughs> it's him shane black and and robert downey jr and i think i would have preferred if it had just been the other two but anyway but yeah that, my first exposure to him was as mad mardigan and yes. A few years later, of course, he was Batman, <laughs> and he, you know, he's he's got a lot of really good roles under his belt. About he was Doc Holliday, man. Yeah, Doc Holliday. This might be my well, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I, I really like this. I really like Kilmer in this. He's kind of a sleazeball in some ways, but yes. total asshole. Yeah, was. but you you kind of I, I have to imagine to be a PI in LA working with a bunch of Hollywood producers and stuff like you probably have to be an asshole. I mean, you're not doing like the most awesome things. Like I said, he insulates his boss from corpses or blackmail or, you know, a a pregnant starlet or what have you. He's not doing awesome shit. I think this, I was going to say, it's clearly smarter than everybody else. Pretty much as far as at least the, the the main characters, although he does end up getting into a bad situation later in the movie. He does, but he is the one who, knows the most about what's going down, immediately understands how everything is working, knows they would have planted a gun. You know, he's he's just the most competent. He's very, he's, he's hyper-competent at what he does. As far as uh, Kilmer's roles, I was just going to say, it's hard not to say that this might be his best, but there is Doc Holliday. So it's not an easy decision. I think it's, it's a toss-up between the two. Most days I do come down on it being Doc Holliday, but He's so good in Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. He's just so fucking good. You know, it's undeniable. He is undeniable. Just a fact. Val Kilmer, Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. Excellent. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who else in the cast we haven't mentioned yet that's uh, popped up in the in like the first half. Corbin uh, I yeah, Corbin Burnson has a pretty small role, but obviously very significant. And he's clearly having fun. He's kind of playing him like in this fey kind of like, you know, like a old Hollywood debauchery guy. Like uh-huh. he's the host who can get you anything you need, darling, you know, and, and just seems like a sleaze. <laughs> and the backstory with him sort of is that uh, his daughter and him had had like a dispute. Uh, she had been in a mental institution and, uh, they kind of resolved that publicly in the days before the the, the movie sort of got going. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find out later that it's not really the case, but that's kind There's of There's reveals and doubles and all that shit. I have to be honest, the stuff with him and his daughter, I, I, it would be physically impossible for me to give less than a shit about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just don't care. I understand that it's important for the story to get them where they need. And, you know, Shane Black points that out in the movie. Where the first scene that, that that is brought up, Harry kind of stops the movie and is like, yeah. oh, do you think that'll be relevant later? You know? <laughs> and it's just it's just that like like Chandler said, it's a plot device. You know, the movie recognizes it as such. So I just kind of go, Oh, plot device. And I I don't invest in it at all. I'm glad that it means that Shannon Sossaman is in it, because that leads to one of my favorite moments in the movie, 
which I don't think happens on this day, so I'll wait to talk about it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's fine. I just mean that this has sure. nothing to do with you. Even when you started talking about it, my eyes started to glaze over a little bit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and again, not because, you know, God, Chris, make it more boring than, you know. No, it's just, it doesn't fucking matter, you know? And it's one of those things in movies like this that just doesn't matter. But it kind of has to be there, which is weird because it doesn't matter. But it's absolutely crucial that we have it. How does that work? <laughs> yeah, uh, Shannon Sossaman being uh, the the pink haired girl, I was kind of surprised. She was kind of a almost like a knit girl for a for a couple minutes. In yeah, a hot thousand. Yeah, they and, gave her some stuff to do, and she's, but, uh, she was fun. She was likable, and and she was an appealing presence. I always liked her and stuff. Yeah, I liked her as well. Um, the thing I think of most, I probably is 40 days and 40 nights with Josh yeah. Hartnett. Well, she was also in, I guess, rules of attraction. Uh, <laughs> in my head, I was just thinking rules of engagement. Thank you. Cause I would have said uh, that and looked real fucking dumb. It's like, Oh really? With Sam Jackson and Guy Pierce, Tommy Lee Jones, dumbass. But then she kind of disappeared for a while and then she popped up in this, but she's only in, you know, a couple of scenes, but definitely does the specifically the scene. I think you're, you're talking about, she's really good in, which yeah. is also a really good scene for, for uh, Robert Downey Jr. I think it's his best moment in the movie. But yeah, she. I think I had the same reaction you did because I had seen her in those movies and then she just kind of went away and I'm watching the movie and she's been in it for at least a couple minutes. You know, I've seen her. She has pink hair, you know, purpley yeah. pink hair. And then suddenly so I was like, really oh. yeah, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. is that, that, is that Shannon <laughs> Sossman? Is that her name? Oh my God, that is, that's that girl. And then she's not in the movie anymore. And I'm like, oh, well, fuck. Well, I mean, you know, it's cool that she was in it. You know, she had a little, you know, thing, a little moment to play that was, like you said, crucial to the whole convoluted plot thing. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a nice surprise to see her. I, I would be happy if I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see her popping up in something I was watching that's new. You know, oh, Shannon Sossman's back. So <laughs> anyone who's listening to this that might have a way to get Shannon Sossman back on my screens again, uh, do your fucking job, okay? Yeah, I actually just recently saw her in Sinister 2, which I had not seen. Until yes, I forgot she was in that. She uh, also yeah, did another, well, in the late 2000s, uh, the two, uh, you know, the the audits or whatever when they were in the midst of the Asian horror remake, she did that one missed call one with Ed Burns. I want to say, Oh really? Uh, I'd like to say it's good and that she's good in it, but honestly, I never watched the fucking thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've not seen it. I was like, nah, but yeah, I, you're right. Sinister too. And she was good in that as I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not bring the... back Shannon. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag day three. Uh, he meets with Perry. Perry tells him that it's all like bullshit. Yeah. On the, the on roof. The of yeah. some hotel. He tells them that really he was only flown out to LA as a ruse by the producer because Colin Farrell had asked for too much money. <laughs> and so they made a big stink about this young unknown discovery and knew that if they threatened to hire him, that Colin Farrell's people would agree to shave off a couple million dollars mm -hmm. with which Harry gets pissed and punches Perry in the face. It looks like a pretty weak punch, to be honest. Yeah, well, it would just be expected. And I like Perry's reaction to it because he gets legitimately, like, violently, one hundred percent. He's in serious mode. Yeah, makes like, him pick up his sunglasses. Pick it up. <laughs> the way he says that through clenched teeth. You know, just the way he abuses and talks shit to Downey is just—it's fucking yeah. masterful, man. Anyway, yeah. And so they have that. He tells Harmony that uh, Harry's not really a private investigator, which pisses her off. Which is why she slams her door in his face when he tries to go apologize, <laughs> and he loses a digit mm. in the door. And her whole opening the door. Did I just cut off your finger? Like, yeah. uh, before we we uh, move past him being used to shave money off Colin Farrell's price, 
I wanted to mention the other actors who were up for this uh, part before they got Robert Downey Jr. as Harry, which according Hugh Grant is one of them, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's what uh, the fuck. the ones listed on Wikipedia are Benicio del Toro, which could have been cool, Hugh Grant, and Johnny Knoxville, which I, oh, I you know, I don't have anything against Johnny Knoxville, but I don't think we'd be talking about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang anymore if Johnny Knoxville was in the role as Harry. I hate agreeing with you because I don't <laughs> want to slam Johnny Knoxville. I love the guy. Yeah, I like him. Why you're almost certainly right with that. Um, <laughs> and this was a time where... Robert Downey Jr. was kind of needing to rebound because he had his career had really taken a dive. And like they did not have to go through any machinations to shave down his price. We'll just say that. (laughs) Yeah, he had been. What what did he go to prison for? Was it tax evasion or was it just like drugs? I think it was drugs. And it's funny because going back to the opening chapter, the washed up actor who finds himself in a stranger's house drunkenly is not unlike something that had happened to Robert Downey Jr. where these people found him sleeping in their kid's bedroom. Oh, I don't Uh, remember that. They were neighbors of his and he came home all fucked up and he went into the wrong house. Yeah. And he went into a bedroom and just passed out. And they found, and I think this happened more than once. And I always thought, I wonder what Robert Downey Jr. said when Shane Black's, okay, we're going to have a scene in a movie. (laughs) <laughs> this and down here, you know, would he have been like, you motherfucker, really? Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm a good sport. All right, you son of a bitch. Um, I do. Wonder, yeah, he, he was he was struggling. Yeah. He, he was trying to come back. And he, he he was his comeback was supposed to be Ally McBeal, I think. Um, yes. Because he had already had some trouble. And then he got a part on that show, which is a big hit, you know, for, on Fox in the early 2000s. And um, I think he fell off again. Yeah, he he didn't even make it through. Like he, I think he got fired from the show even because of like his problems and stuff. So this was his attempted second attempted comeback, I guess. But luckily, it stuck this time because shortly after this, obviously he would. I think this is the role that John Favreau cited as why he wanted him to be Tony Stark for, for Iron Man. What, well, that's what people have said. Yeah. Uh, Favreau said it. Downey said it. It seems pretty obvious that you know, yeah, he's back. He's focused. He's he's the Robert Downey Jr. We all, we all know as this immense talent and you know, he's back. And then Iron Man did wonders This is before <laughs> the MCU was the MCU. You know, that was right. a complete gamble, right. but it was a big hit. And then Sherlock Holmes was like, Oh, he's back for good. And he has been since then. And luckily no more problems, you know, you know, and then, you know, thank God, you know, yeah, he, he had his struggles and he got, he, he, he's, he made it out to the other side and, Good for him. I'm I'm so happy it didn't because you know you you hear stories. We've seen how it goes. The ending for some it it yeah. doesn't always go that way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it goes bad, and it didn't for him. You know, and and I'm grateful as a human, and and also as a selfish person who enjoys watching him do stuff. <laughs> I'm glad he's back, and I get to I get to just revel in his talent. You know, mm-hmm. fuck yeah. And I do kind of wonder like. There's what the connection with Shane Black and Robert Downey Jr. is outside of like just because I know Robert Downey Jr. and Mel Gibson were like close. They were in Air America together. Yeah, they did Air America, and I believe when Downey Jr. was trying to come back at one point before Mel Gibson was canceled, <laughs> uh, he gave him a role in the Singing Detective. Is that what the name of it is? Yes, which meant a lot to to Robert Downey Jr. And I wonder like. Because I know they're close. I wonder if Shane Black and Mel Gibson are still buddies because of their connection through Lethal Weapon and stuff like that. I but don't know. I believe that seems... Black and Downey are close. I don't know about 
Black and uh, Gibson. Uh, but um, I don't really hear much about Mel Gibson's personal life anymore. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think people are really uh, shining a light on it. If they, yeah, if people aren't really asking for it, and they're certainly not, you know, offering it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, of course, late, we'll talk more about Black and, and Robert Downey Jr. on our next episode. <laughs> cool. And their uh, their connections and stuff. So yeah, we're on we're on day three. So yeah, he gets his uh, finger uh, chopped off by the door. That scene with the close up of him getting his finger reattached <laughs> is so disturbing to me. Like <laughs> it's, it's clearly like they're in an emergency room and like they've got that solution. Like betadine or whatever, that brown like yeah. It's like oh, that looks way too authentic. I don't like it. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Anyone who's ever had to have that on us, we, we, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it flashes us back into a not so awesome place. Actually, yeah. I've never I, had a, uh, an appendage lost, but I oh, had a broken yeah. finger that I had to have surgically repaired once and it sucked. So, yeah, he, he basically figures out like that Harmony's sister is the one who hired Perry that, on that first night. So that kind of connects their two cases together, uh, essentially. And then we get to the party where, Downey or, or Harry still high on, you know, the medication from getting his finger reattached has his speech about how all the, the girls in L.A. are broken husks, basically. And I do. Is that also the scene where when Perry shows up, he gives the thrill me line? I think so. Uh, yeah, he says you have 30 seconds of my time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what you have. 30 seconds on my time. So. Uh, which is not, at the time, I didn't know what thrill me meant. It wasn't a thing to me until I saw Night of the Creeps probably 10 years ago now. But yeah, he, he um, it was a treat for me to see it in this movie. But yeah, so they have a um, videotape of one of Corbin Birds' characters. Harlan Dexter. Harlan Dexter of one of his uh, 80s movies. And I was really curious where they got the footage. like Because it's clearly like... L.A. Law era. Yeah, is it's, what, it's is what made me Corbin Burnson, you know, and he's playing like a cop or somebody's got a gun. And on the commentary track, Shane Black mentioned that it was a couple of different shows, TV shows or TV movies like cut together to make it look like a different movie. So it's not all from like the same production, apparently, that they had <laughs> something they cut together to make it look like a real movie. But I, I was really curious, like where they got that footage from. And he's playing Johnny Gossamer, right? In the movie. I think that was the idea. Yeah. They um, never specifically say. They just make a point of letting us know he was in it, and yeah. they find out about the meeting, or their Perry has to follow someone or something, and they realize he's being set up in the park. Right. He he basically says, I've got a job to do tonight. We'll deal with this later. And then Harry is confronted by a couple of thugs. Uh, what were their names again? Mr. Frying Pan and Mr. Fire. Yeah. And I don't recognize, or I recognize both these guys, but I don't know... Well, really what I know from, I think the black guy was on prison break. Maybe is that I'm almost positive. He was, I really know him from the, the one in cult classic terriers with Donald Logue. Mm. Uh, he was a supporting role in that and he's really good. The other guy was in movies. It seemed like every fucking movie in the nineties. Right. Yeah. I I, I, I recognize him, but I couldn't name one thing that he's in, but I know I've seen him in a bunch of stuff. Bunch of stuff. But yeah, they realize through this, that Perry's being set up and uh, so they go after him and, after some shenanigans, <laughs> Harry basically passes out in the back of uh, Harmony's car. And the girl with the pink hair, who is the one who's setting Perry up to get killed, ends up back in trying to like escape in Harmony's car. And so Harry ends up back like at her apartment. And that leads to like one of the most, I don't know, I want to say heart wrenching, but like the like it's most a serious. It's powerful little scene. 
Yeah, one of the most serious parts of the movie where he's uh, he kind of wakes up hiding under a bed. Yeah, stumbles into the apartment, hides under the bed when he hears people coming. And I'm not sure if it's Mr. Frying Pan or Mr. Fire. <laughs> one of them. It's Mr. Fire. Okay, Must one of yeah, Mr. Fi- Frying Pan gets killed in a shootout with Perry, and the other one is, I guess, sent to deal Rap with the pink the haired girl and shoots her on the bed, and she rolls off onto the floor, and she's not quite dead yet, and she's kind of like staring Harry down. Uh, they're just like sharing into each other's eyes and Harry's basically hoping like she doesn't say anything so he won't be found out. And Sossaman, who doesn't really have very many lines in the movie, doesn't do a whole lot, really sells that dying girl on the ground. And even to the point where she has like a little smile on her face after she's like clearly passed away, it's really kind of haunting. Mm-hmm. Like she's confused there's someone under her bed, but she's also kind of weirdly delighted to see someone or and all this while she's dying. You know, and, it's a weird little moment. And and Downey is freaking out. <laughs> and Harry's even like got to put his hands over her mouth to keep her from like giving him away. Mm-hmm. While the bad guys in the other room getting like, I guess he's getting a bag ready to ready to clean up the scene, I guess. But Harry finds the gun he's left on the bed and he kills the guy. Yeah, You don't but, know exactly what his reaction is going to be. No, he seems like he's in shock. And then the guy comes in and. He's got the gun, and the guy's trying to play it off all tough, you know. Yeah, he's playing sure he's cool. going to. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to get the gun away from this dude, and I'm going to fuck him up. And Harry looks at the corpse and shoots him. And the first, I think almost every time he pulls the trigger, he shoots him like five times. He's looking at the corpse. He's not looking at the guy. He's looking at why he's doing it. You can yeah. tell that he's, like you said, it's that chivalrous nature. He's offended. He's disgusted and he feels like he needs to like he looks at the corpse and and he looks like he's gonna cry every time he's pulling the trigger because he's yeah clearly never done anything like this before and has his little breakdown which is again downy acting his ass off and like you know i shot a guy i never did that before and you can tell he's he is experiencing shock (laughs) he's just yeah he's all fucked up over it and it's a beautiful weird little moment because he's killing a guy but the way he's doing it, you it feels like he's doing it for revenge and to get the justice that he feels, you know, he feels like he's doing the right thing. But you can tell it's a very emotional thing for him. And you don't really see people getting shot emotionally. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's a really, it's a great little moment. It's, I don't know if that's what Black told Downey to do or if that's how Downey decided he was going to play it. But I applaud every choice he made. And for me, I think it's, it's Downey's best moment of acting in the movie yeah and it's really kind of out of left field almost because of the tone of the movie up to this point there's been some serious stuff there's been allusions to like harmony's sister being sexually assaulted when she was younger and stuff like that but the the somber uh, tone of that scene when it really pops off uh, is kind of different from the rest of the movie and he quickly like shane black quickly jumps it back into comedy mode because downey jr's lost his finger again after it's been reattached and the pink-haired girl's dog eats steals his finger. finger. <laughs> yeah, he steals his finger. Uh, and at first, he, you know, Harry's trying to get it back. But then eventually the dog just swallows it. <laughs> and so they think everything's kind of wrapped up at that point. And I guess that gets us to day four, which is the simple art of murder, which I believe that's not a story. That's an essay, right, that Chandler did about, like, crime fiction. I want to say yes, but I, I- – I- I don't want to guarantee it. (laughs) I think that's the case. I've actually never read it, but I think that's the case. So, and honestly, I can't remember what clues lead them there, but um, Harry realizes that 
they have to go to this mental this mental hospital to to get some info to find out. I think he realizes that, the, that body, the corpse had no panties. Yeah, the 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 body that they initially found they realized was Veronica Dexter is Dexter's daughter, and that the pink haired girl was actually pretending to be. Dexter's uh, daughter in public to make it look like she was still alive, even though they had already killed her. So they end up at this institution or this hospital and an orderly that apparently worked for Dexter, uh, you know, catches them. They kind of turn the tables on him and try to interrogate him. And one of my favorite most of the movie is Harry trying to do a Russian roulette style threat where he puts one bullet in the gun, spins the barrel and, uh, Shoots the guy in the head accidentally, basically. Uh, so he's killed some, two guys. Yeah, some I've never effort. seen in a movie before. It was fantastic when it happened. Yeah, it's clearly one of those things that Shane Black has probably thought of a million times. Like, wouldn't it be funny if this happened? But he just had never found the perfect movie to put it in. And he finally did. And then that kind of leads to, you know, Harmony finds out that they're in trouble. And it kind of leads to a big kind of almost out of place, elaborate shootout on the highway uh, towards the end. I don't say out of place in a bad way, but it's like totally unlike most of what's been going on in the movie because Harry almost becomes like an action hero in the last five minutes. He totally does. He kills like three people in like 30 seconds. Yeah, I I, I was curious. I didn't count, but I was curious if by the end of the movie, Harry had killed 16 people because they referenced at one point in the Johnny Gossamer books – Harmony and Harry mentioned he always kills 16 people in those uh, in the novels. I don't think he actually kills that many people. Um, no. But he does kill quite a few towards the end. Perry ends up getting shot and apparently killed uh, in the process. We find out later that he makes it. But this big shootout at the end, there's big car crashes. There's like a the caskets flying o- across the highway, hanging off of a bridge for a fairly low budget movie it's pretty impressive uh, it's the only big action you know set piece in the whole movie but it looks really cool it really does it, he i i was very impressed upon seeing it the first time and i still am it's a really i think expertly executed little action sequence and shane black is to be commended it's very exciting it's cut well the rhythm of it is good i understood everything that was going on and it's cool <laughs> it's very, very cool. I was cheering the first time I saw it. And like yes. you said, it does kind of seem to come out of nowhere, but it's like, hell yeah, give me some kick-ass action, <laughs> Shane Black, you know? And and the way Harry, you know, is like, no, and then just fucking blasted it. And it's it's so cool. It's I, I mean, obviously, most people listening to this have seen it, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you haven't, <laughs> I don't want to go beat by beat. And then he does this, sure. and then he does that, because as you're watching it, you're like, oh, <laughs> oh shit and it's just it's just this perfect little series of action beats within again like two minutes maybe less you know it's real quick but it's it's kind of like oh god oh whoa oh this got hardcore for a second and then it's over and you're like fuck that was badass and the so moment where it. perry gets shot the bullet goes like clean through him and it looks like harry gets shot and then later Towards the end of the this big action sequence, Harmony sees, oh, you the book, stop the bullet. He has one of those Gossamer books in his jacket. And then she notices, oh, there's a hole completely through the bullet. So uh, Harry has been shot. And that's one of those things that Black does a lot through the movie is like one of those subvert, subverting expectations things. Mm-hmm. Where like with the Russian rule. Which is, it works great in this movie. I think when we talk about Iron Man 3, he probably leans too much on those <laughs> type of gags. <laughs> but in this, it, it works really good. And so Harry survives, and then they show Perry also survived. He's in the hospital with, with Harry as he's recovering. And... Uh, 
one of the, my favorite jokes in the movie is as uh, once Perry, you know, wheels in in a wheelchair showing that he's still around the narration from Harry is, well, uh, I get it. It's, it's cheesy. Like that, that uh, Perry survived. Why don't we just bring everybody back? And then the pink hair girl walks in and the two thugs walk in and then Abraham Lincoln walks in uh, and it just keeps going and going. I've always loved that, uh, that joke at the end. It's a weird little joke, but it is funny. It works. Yeah. yeah it becomes almost a cartoon for like 10 seconds <laughs> and then it's over with, but it plays very well with the way he breaks the fourth wall and yeah. the acknowledgement that what we're watching is a movie, you know, and because it's a movie, they can fucking bring dead Abraham Lincoln back out. You know, just because, because one day Shane Black was like, what about fucking Abraham Lincoln? And then there it is. And it's in the movie, you know, should have brought back fucking Elvis and, you know, Bigfoot and shit. Why not go big? (laughs) But it's a, it's a groovy little joke. And they also, you know, they, they kind of resolve all the the plot threads as far as what happened with Harmony's sister and what was going on with Dexter and, and all of, all of his machinations and everything. And it proves again about which we don't really care. (laughs) But it also proves how smart Perry is in a way, because as soon as he found out that Harmony was trying to hire Harry to solve his sister's murder and Harry tells Perry about it, Perry immediately is like, she killed herself. There, I solved the case for you. (laughs) I guarantee you that's what happened. And, you know, we don't know why until the end, but that it does turn out to be the case. Perry's good at his job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's like. Yeah, it goes back to childhood trauma and. And he gets a little for the audience, gets to go slap an old man, but the old man fucking deserved a beating. He deserved way worse. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Uh, But that's all I really got. I guess that's pretty much the the gist of the movie. I love this movie. (laughs) It probably is my favorite Shane Black movie. I love Iron Man 3. I mean, I love all of the stuff he's been involved with, with the exception of, I don't think Last Action Hero is very good. I haven't watched it since I was a kid, but I can't imagine... I would like it now if I didn't like it when I was 13. I just can't. Uh, you know, I think you might, though. I, I'm not saying you will. Yeah. When I saw I considered it, watching it again just because now I know that it's a Shane Black project he worked on and stuff. And that's yeah. the only reason I care to revisit it, but I haven't done it yet. And the way it's playing off the tropes of movies and stuff, you have a lot more years of those movies under your belt. Um, when I saw it, when it first came out, I was like 18 and I was really stoked for it. And it was kind of disappointing. Honestly, I was like, I thought this would be better. And then years went by and I watched it again. I'm like, you know, this is more fun than I remember it being. And then years went by and I watched it again. I was like, you know what? This is actually pretty good. And every time I've watched it since then, and I've watched it a number of times, it gets more and more fun. Do I think it should have been better? Yes. <laughs> do I think it could have been better? Yeah, I do. But I didn't make that shit. I probably would have made something way worse. And <laughs> what we got is definitely fun. And I know that Shane Black and an uncredited William Goldman were the ones who were brought in near the end to kind of salvage, you know, what they felt was a movie that had issues. Mm-hmm. They were like, we need rewrites. We need this. And they were brought in to save the movie. And Shane According to Goldman, Shane was focusing more on the action sequences and coming up with set pieces and stuff and making them exciting and interesting. And Goldman was the one working on like story and dialogue and shit. And he said that's a crazy way to run a railroad, you know, to to split it up like that. That's not yeah. how you write a script. But they were doing what they could. And apparently Black is the only one that got an actual script credit. I think Goldman just gets a thank you in the end credits, which is, you know, come on. Show some respect. Yeah, it's, you know, I understand. I understand you being underwhelmed by it. I was too. But I feel that if I could come around on it to full on, like I do, I love it. I think it's a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, Maybe you might not be disappointed if you were to give it another (laughs) shot. Maybe you might hate it even more. I don't, 
I don't know. But hey, if you did take another shot, the only bad thing that happens is you saw a movie you never have to watch again. Yeah, I'm sure I will eventually, you know, give it another go, but it's been a while since I watched it. But yeah, that one and Last Boy Scout we've talked about before. I don't dislike it, but it didn't grab me, you know, the one time I've watched it. So that's another one I will have to revisit <laughs> at some point. But of the, of all the others, I think Kiss Kiss Bang Bang front to back is probably my my favorite of his movies. And uh, The Nice Guys is up there, too. We'll, we'll talk more about that, I think, on our last episode when we kind of cover some other Shane Black stuff. But I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and I love pretty much all the performances. Like you said, we need more Michelle Monaghan. <laughs> yeah, Michelle Monaghan. Um, and... I would even like more Val Kilmer. Obviously, that's probably not going to happen. He's in bad health. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. But um, I enjoyed him in this a lot. Any last thoughts on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang before we move on to recommendation type stuff? Well, I think anytime someone like yourself would say this is my favorite Shane Black movie, there's no way of saying, wow, that's surprising to me. I don't get it because <laughs> it's fucking awesome. It's uh, To me, it's a five out of five star movie. I think it's utterly fantastic. All the way around. But yeah, I go back and forth between this and The Nice Guys, because I think The the Nice Guys is also a five-star movie. And I don't know. I mean, I live in a world where I don't have to choose between them. I just get to be happy that I have them both and can watch them whenever I want. And I'll just do that. But I I do know it's, it's as good as anything Shane Black ever did. It is Shane Black at his very best. It's just a phenomenal piece of entertainment. It's what I think people who like these kind of movies it's what you hope for when you sit down to watch a movie it gives you that what else could we ask for nothing that's what oh show boom smooch, <laughs> boom boom that's what aj got to say about kiss kiss bang bang all right well before we roll out uh we're gonna do rolling some out sorry holiday recommendations again i've got several things you want me to go first or are you ready to roll i can definitely roll <laughs> but I mean, if you want to go first, hit it. Uh, I've got several things. Uh, just I'm going to kind of touch on briefly. First is a movie. Uh, I watched it a couple years ago on Shudder. It's a horror, a Christmas horror flick. And I enjoyed it quite a bit and rewatched it again this week. And then they showed it on Joe Bob's Christmas special last night. So I watched it again last night. And that's a Christmas horror story. Which is an uh, anthology. The anthology. Yeah. yeah, it's an anthology a horror flick all set around Christmas. Have you seen that one? I have not. That's from Canada, right? Um, maybe. <laughs> I think I heard it's a it's a Canadian special. I think I think it is. But yeah, I I like that one uh, pretty well. It's a kind of a mixed bag, like most anthologies are. And I'm not going to go into all the details about which the different stories are. But for the most part, they're all watchable, and a couple of them are actually really good, including one with uh, Santa and some like infected, almost zombie-like elves that he's <laughs> he's fighting off at the North Pole. It, it's pretty funny. It's got some cool gore. There's different types of horror and the different stories. There's some Krampus action in there. So it's a lot of fun. The Christmas angle like makes the whole movie as a whole more fun. It kind of lifts it up a level, I think. So I like that one. It's worth watching, especially around the holidays. Got a TV episode. Want to highlight, we talked about news radio quite a bit on our second Civil War uh, episode of Small Screeners where we talked about Phil Hartman quite a bit. So there's a news radio episode called Christmas. I think it's from the second season. Nice. Uh, I think there are two plots going on uh, in that one. Uh, one, Mr. James, played by Stephen Root, is giving... Uh, he, he gives all of the staff, at least the staff that are main characters on the show, <laughs> uh, he gives them all sports cars for Christmas, except for uh, Andy Dick's character, Matthew, who he gifts a box of... Uh, 
an old radio play, uh, like a tape, like a box set of tapes of this old radio play. Uh, and that goes in interesting directions as the story, as the episode goes. But the main attraction to that episode is Phil Hartman's character, Bill, is being harassed by a Santa who has set up shop in the lobby of the building. And every time he walks by, the Santa basically says, I'm going to kill you, Bill. <laughs> and, uh, he tries to tell the security guards and they like don't believe him. It's Nobody believes you know he's being threatened by this Santa Claus. So that's a really good episode. News Radio is one of the best sitcoms ever, ever and definitely of the 90s. Real quick before you move on, are those uh, security guards, is that when they were played by Tone Loke and Toby Huss? That is correct. All right. Tone I know Loke. my fucking news radio, bro. <laughs> that whole the whole running gag about his ID when they were there. Yeah. Yeah. And they won't let him in. That <laughs> slays me. Yeah, those two guys are or those two security guards are in a couple episodes, at least those yeah. two. They may have been in a few others as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. And it's a it's a travesty that it's not on a streaming service. I think it some episodes I think are on Roku, but like it should be on Netflix or Peacock Amazon or something. Yeah. It should be available. <laughs> you can buy it, I know, because I bought the whole yeah. season, uh, the whole series on Amazon, and I also have it all on DVD. I wanted to have a couple different choices, and I wanted to make sure, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm supporting the stuff I love. I just wish it was more easily <laughs> available. But I mean, really, it's. I mean, if you pay for it, it's available. It should be streaming, though. Yeah, that's on a nice. service that you pay for. <laughs> pay for the service, <laughs> give me the show. Right, and um, I want to be able to tell people. Yeah, watch it. It's on Netflix or it's on such and such. Just fire it up. Give it a shot. I think you'll like it. Rather than saying, hey, go buy this DVD set. (laughs) Yeah, and hopefully you'll dig it. So yeah, news radio. And then I've got a comic book. Uh, It's called Friday. I've seen that movie. And you know this, uh, man? Oh, close to that. Close to that. It's um, (laughs) book one is called The First Day of Christmas. Uh, book two just came out this week, and I think it's called A Winter's Tale, maybe. So it's set around Shitty movie. I hope it's better than that. Okay, <laughs> it's set around it's set around Christmas, and it's written by Ed Brubaker, who is and probably my favorite comic book writer. You do love the noiry crime stuff. Oh yeah, that's his that's his bag. That's his uh, bread and butter, baby. The other one would be Kurt Busiek, but he does more superhero type. Uh, stuff, but Brubaker he does a lot of crime comics. He also has one called Fatal that's like a noir crossed with like Lovecraft horror. That's really good. But this is a different thing. This is very similar in conception anyway to Kid Detective, which is one of my favorite movies from a couple years ago. Yes. Uh, so the conceit of Friday is there's a boy detective in a small town and he has like a sidekick who's actually kind of the muscle and that the boy detective it's like a post YA story. So it's like after these kids have grown up, Friday is the main character. She was the like sidekick to the boy detective uh, and she's coming back from college, like for her Christmas break. And there's a case that the, 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 the detective in, uh, kind of wants her help with. And it's got gorgeous art from Marcos Martin. And there is a little bit of detective stuff and some like horror elements as well in it. And you can read it for free at uh, panelsyndicate.com where you can, it's a website where you can go and pay whatever you want. And Brubaker, I've heard him say on podcasts, like, we don't care if you pay $0 for it. You can go there and just put in zero as the amount and you can, you know, download the issues there and and read it online. Uh, And then the print books are also available at like comic shops. And it's really cool. One last thing is an album and that's she and him. They've got two Christmas albums. Don't know if you're familiar, but it's Zoe Deschanel's. Um, Her and music. M Ward, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. And 
they do just traditional Christmas carols and, and Christmas songs and kind of give it their own flavor. A lot of them is, are kind of, I can see people thinking that it's kind of boring because there's not a, there are some peppy songs in there, but they slow some of the like traditionally like faster paced songs. They slow them down. They kind of play with the arrangements and stuff, but I really love Zoe Deschanel's voice. Uh, so I enjoy those, those Christmas albums. But that's my Rex for this week. What do you got? Well, first I'll say those are cool Rex. I don't know all of it, but I'm, <laughs> you, you did sell it. You did a good job making me want to know about it. So good on you, brother. Um, <laughs> My pick this week, or this episode anyway, is uh, I'm going to go with a TV special from 1977 directed by Jim Henson called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Is you know, for TV, it's, you know, I think it's less than an hour, 48 minutes. It's based on a children's book from 1971. It's about uh, Emmett Otter and his mom, these, uh, these poor otters. Uh, and how they're struggling to get Christmas presents for each other. And because they're poor and they're trying to figure it out and there's music and there's like an evil little gang of uh, mean animals. There's a, a snake, a lizard, a weasel, a stoat called like the River Bottom Boys or something. Because it's like in this little community. And they're also a, a band, a rock band called The Nightmare. It's got Paul Williams songs, the guy who wrote you know, also the Muppet movie songs and a lot of pop stuff that we know and also did the songs and music for Phantom of the Paradise, the Brian Ooh. DePaul classic. And so it's just this sweet little, you know, Muppets, you know, it feel it doesn't have any of the, well, no, that's not true. Kermit introduces it and then, and then outros it, but he's not in the body of the story proper, but it's like less than an hour. It's a sweet, fun kind of emotional at times, like surprisingly moving. Like you, you guys are little pieces of felt. Why are you making me feel these feels? But it's just, it's it's well done, and it's sweet, and it's heartwarming. It's Christmas, and the music is is groovy. There's a song called Barbecue that when I showed it to uh, my wife for the first time, it immediately became one of her favorite songs. And the next couple of Christmases, she's, she'll, when she brings it up, she's like, when are we going to get to barbecue? And I know she means getting to watch uh, Emmett Otter. Hmm. And it's on Peacock and Amazon Prime as we speak. Nice. So... You know, he brought back all the people that did the Muppets with him. You know, Dave Gulls, uh, Richard Hunt, Jerry Nelson, the erstwhile and unstoppable Frank Oz. And, you know, Henson does what Henson does. It's great. I absolutely love it. I think it's it's a wonderful holiday special. One of the best, not just Christmas specials, but holiday specials that has ever been. And I could not recommend it more to our uh, our faithful listeners and all the fine, fine people of the Internet. Nice. I've actually never seen it. I've heard a lot about it, but it, you know, what, what, what year did you say it came out? 70? 77. 77. So yeah, that was before my time, but I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I've heard about it a lot. I see it recommended a lot online and stuff. So I'm sure it's pretty cool. Maybe I'll have to check it out. It's on Peacock, you said? Peacock and Prime. Nice. You should, you should definitely check it out. I know you're a festive soul. We come in, well, I mean, we come in here with these recommendations and I'm prepared to like have one recommendation. That. You know, I might have to think of something like a minute before I, I speak. But with you, you're like, okay, I got a movie, I got a book, I got an episode of TV, I got a miniseries on TV that was set during the uh, nativity. Uh, I got this Christmas album, and then I got these three singles, you know, that went on Christmas albums. You are prepared, bro. So I highly recommend you check this out. That way, if we have Christmas specials next year, you can make it one of your recommendations. Mm -hmm. Good idea. That's what I'm saying. All right. Well, we got anything else before we roll out for this episode? No. 
<laughs> Let people know where they can find you on the internet, AJ. Uh, they can find me at Twitter for now. You know, I mean, God, who knows what the deal is with Twitter from hour to hour. But at present, I am on Twitter under the handle at Haunted Gels, uh, G-E-L-S. And I am uh, on Hive Social, uh, buzzing little busy bee, uh, Alberto AJ Man, A-L-B-E-R-T-O-A-J-M-A-N. Yeah. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brodyman34. I've also got another podcast I do with my buddy Jesse Starcher called Unspoken Issues, where we talk about 90s comics. And you can find the Instagram and Twitter pages for small screeners at small screeners on those uh, fine social media <laughs> sites. Uh, and we're going to get out of here for this week. And we'll be back in a couple of days, actually, with a look at Iron Man 3 to close out the Shane Black Christmas. <laughs> you